This is a Poets and Writers page one author reading. To hear more, visit us at pw.org forward slash multimedia or at soundcloud.com forward slash poets and writers. My grandmothers are in the waiting room of the Steele Memorial Hospital in Salmon, Idaho. Mamie in a straight shift dress, green stripes and gray, and her cat eye glasses, Grandma Loss with her ballooning ankles, though neither woman had yet reached the age of 40. The doctor reported what they already knew. My mother was in labor too soon. She'd gained only 12 pounds, making for a small baby at term, and term wasn't for another seven weeks. My father's mother had been told in this same hospital some years earlier that her daughter was stillborn. My mother's mother had lived through the news on four dim mornings. So these were women who'd proven such tragedy was survivable, and they were, as the doctor suggested they should be, ready for another infant to emerge from the womb, cold and silent, its skin a color as if blue had been turned inside out, eyelids sealed and toes folded like petals. My grandmothers not particularly close, not terribly friendly with each other, a fissure I would soon enough exploit for my own benefit, scooted closer together on this one day and waited. A day earlier, the boy who was my father had slipped out of work. He locked the shop's door and hurried down the main street sidewalk, though he'd get an earful from his boss, Grandpa Bob, for quitting early. The welding shop was located in back of Gortney Equipment, owned by my great-grandparents, and it was here that my father wore a helmet to cover his head and face where he pulled on gloves up to his elbows to keep sparks from lighting on the fine hairs of his forearms. Mike helped fabricate parts for balers and tractors and welded springs and latches for horse trailers and gates, soot nesting in his hair. Grandpa Bob had already left the shop that afternoon off for a cup of coffee laced with whatever whiskey was handy under a table at Wally's Cafe, and Mike left no note of explanation, only his scorched equipment on the shelf. He met up with his friend Sandy, and the two made their way to a pasture. They saddled horses and headed toward the mountains, riding over hills packed with gray sagebrush and through slate blue creeks gurgling high in the pine forest. They rode toward the snow-packed bitterroots, which must have risen in front of them like a shining mirror. Summer had begun, school was out, and everything was about to change. Everything. They were 16 years old. It wasn't deer season or elk season, not legal to go out after even a grouse at the end of June, but my father was going to show his mettle by riding into the Lemhi Mountains, where he'd hunted since the age of four. He'd given himself and Sandy until nightfall to bring back a buck to butcher into roasts and steaks and packages of ground burger to store in his parents' freezer. Some snow-heavy day ahead, when it was too dark and slick to walk on salmon streets after the sun went down, when you didn't dare hold to the iron railing up the hill to my grandparents' house for fear of tearing skin, Mike would fry the liver to a grizzled crust in his mother's cast-iron pan, and he'd fork a chewed-up bite into his child's mouth, a boy child's mouth. At least it had to be that, a boy. 
He'd buy a twenty-two to put in the kid's hands as soon as the pointer finger could pull a trigger. More sophisticated rifles would come as the boy grew up with scopes and straps and dusty boxes of ammunition. Chilled autumn days set aside for hunting. The campfires were four generations of family men sipped whiskey while someone started up on guitar, another on harmonica, to play the familiar tunes, the best to drink by, to brawl by. The boy has a spot there. My father has planned it, a stump in the circle just for his son. But my father is bushwhacking through the woods on my birthday, not a boy's, and he carries a map. The map is in his head, etched over years in this terrain, a topography as familiar to him as every inch of the half acre behind his parents' house up to the line of shuddering cottonwoods on the banks of Jesse Creek. Here in the forest, my father recognizes downed logs in the shadows, fallen trees nursing feathery hemlock and ponderosa. He knows which slopes have burned and which were only licked by flames. He walks through milkvetch and larkspur blooming across the rise, forest stuff crunching under his boots, a sharp-shinned hawk circling overhead. He stealths through the trees, watching for a flash of tawny hide, the angle of an antler. What he doesn't see are one or two humps of tree roots, a jackrabbit hole, an errant cracked stone. Maybe I'm the one who's placed impediments like that in his path so he might catch the toe of his boot and go flying, slamming a hip on hard ground, waking him up to what's happening today, me moving toward him and him moving toward me, like it or not. If he was paying attention, he might sniff out the earliest hint of our long pattern, the one already welling through the decades ahead. This is the day he begins his role of the disappointed man, while I become the child who disappoints, the daughter who'll be in his arms in a matter of hours, a girl who'll squall and stink and keep him up at night, who'll require a snap of his nail against her foot so she'll stay awake long enough to eat. A girl gumming up his youth, his prospects for college, his ability to make money, to pursue any kind of notoriety. Mike has been told all his life that he's somebody, that he's on his way out of Salmon. He's the smartest boy, the best looking, the most capable, the hardest of hard workers. But apparently he can fuck up too because he got a girl pregnant when he was 15 and she was 16 and now they, we, are bound inextricably.